This is the Incubator Podcast. with Beth Waters, who is a scientist in the McEwen lab here at Rockefeller University, and she studies women's health, in particular, women's health during menopause. Hi, Beth. How are you? Hi, Jeannie. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's such a pleasure. So um, before we get into your research, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about your background. Where are you from? I grew up in a smallish town in Wisconsin, um, very typical small town life filled with grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. I went to college at Madison, Wisconsin, and then went to grad school in Oregon. So my being on the East Coast is my uh, desire to actually hit all parts of the country. So Beth, how did you get into women's research or research about women? For me, it wasn't a super direct path. I had been interested in science in college, but I was also interested in languages, and I had studied abroad in Japan and was an East Asian studies major, um, but had always kept up with the sciences, not sure exactly what I was going to do. Um, But then I was actually studying in Japan when I heard from my mother that a beloved high school teacher of mine had died from complications of multiple sclerosis. And sort of two days later, I was on the phone with my college telling the secretary in the biochemistry office that I couldn't possibly come in to put my name on the waiting list, that maybe she could write it down for me. Like I just like knew at that point that science was the road that I wanted to choose, that I had known several women who had died from complications of multiple sclerosis. I had worked as a nursing assistant in a nursing home during high school and seen women suffer from this. And just for me, that was like a catalyzing moment where I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to understand women's health, understand why women have some diseases at a higher rate than men and men sometimes a higher disease than women. Why is the biology so different? Yeah, Chris and I were just sort of talking a little bit about how, you know, men and women are very different. Um, and uh, I, But if you look at a lot of the clinical studies of years past, it's always done with a male cohort. And I don't think people realize that what might be good for a male or what we learn about a male may not translate into the female realm. So, you know... For instance, traumatic brain injuries. Apparently, estrogen, the hormone that is highest in in women, um, seems to play a role in the healing of of these types of injuries. So, but what we know about traumatic brain injury is mostly uh, has mostly been learned in males. So there is Mm -hmm. some disconnect. So I think it's really admirable that you you've chosen to pursue this type of path. Yeah, I think that's interesting that, you know, I think sometimes in society people are PC about things. And does that affect the science? Like thinking about men and women as different outside of gender roles and from the biology, like, you know, studying those differences and how it, you know, affects people. It's it's interesting. I, I don't know if it's a PC thing that men 
or women are being studied, but it's easier to study men, like just from a purely biological sense. When you look at men, um, there's sort of just one type of male when you look at hormone levels. But if you look at a female over the course of a month, over the course of a menstrual cycle, there's many different estrogen levels. You know, I'm, I'm looking at rodent models and uh, a rat has a four-day stress cycle. Every four days they ovulate. So what that actually means is there's every day has different estrogen levels. I'm looking at four different types of females in order to understand how females work. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I have a male, I have one type of male. Right. So it's it's a lot more complicated. It makes sense in many cases to start working on males first because that's a simpler system in terms of hormones. But it doesn't make sense to not study females because the biology is is different with estrogen on board. Right. So um, maybe we can get into a little bit about what your research is exactly about. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into your day-to-day life? My day-to-day life. The, I, I think you want me to say I'm a most gynecologist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I spend a lot of time with um, my female mice um, looking at how their brains respond differently at different when there's different estrogen levels on board. And if I do that in an intact cycling mice, it means that I have to keep track of what stage of the cycle they are. All my mice go to the, go to the gynecologist regularly. I take vaginal samples in order to determine when they're ovulating. The other part of the life of the mice in these experiments is that they also go through testing for anxiety and changes in memory. So we look at what mice are doing at different stages of their estrus cycle, um, what they do behaviorally, and then we also take the brains and we look at what's changing inside the brains. My bigger project right now actually has to do with menopause and looking at how the brain changes when you go into a state like menopause where estrogen levels are going to be very low, um, non-cyclic for you know the rest the rest of the lifespan. So estrogen um, somehow affects uh, what what about the brain? Hmm. Is it plasticity or modeling or? So estrogen seems to affect the brain on several levels, both molecular and cellular levels. It can actually change the molecular composition of the brain, what proteins are being expressed, where in the cells they are, but it can also change the shape of the cells and so the connectivity between different parts of the brain. Uh, For example, in female rats, at times when estrogen levels are high during ovulation, there's actually more synaptic connections between cells uh, than there are when estrogen levels are low. It's remarkable to see this amount of change in the brain, a 30% increase in synapses that is happening every, you know, within a two-day period, within a 48-hour period. It's a really rapid change. It can even happen faster, um, but it, it's, a, it's just super complex. Even though we know what's happening, we know estrogen is critical for that event, we don't yet understand the molecular, the cellular mechanisms involved in actually creating a new synapse, creating plasticity, making the brain um, able to respond more in certain situations. 
to me it's interesting that like your research how it also affects men because we don't produce as much um, estrogen and I'm sure that has a you know it's very valuable when it comes to the biology of men as well understanding like some of the things that happen with us so I think from a society standpoint it's kind of interesting that so much emphasis is placed around reproduction where it's a much seems like a greater issue or set of issues that are really around this you know idea of of producing estrogen in the body and what what it means it is, and I think sometimes um, women's health gets stuck at the reproductive level when really, you know, the cardiovascular and the nervous system issues are much greater in terms right. of quality of life. And understanding how estrogen works in the female brain and body has implications for uh, male health also, because males can also make testosterone, which can be converted to estrogen. and we don't understand why males don't respond to estrogen in the same way as females. However, since we don't fully even understand how estrogen is working in the female brain, we can't really harness that potential yet. Estrogen is protective on the brain. We don't know what the mechanism is completely. If we did, maybe we could use that to treat the male brain in a case like traumatic brain injury or you know concussions. There's potential there for, you know, just the benefits of estrogen. And I think about like some of the communities that are at high risk for heart disease and other cardiovascular mm -hmm. issues like African-American and like mm -hmm. Hispanic and what that must mean for those communities, you know, that are once those women are, you know, in menopause and right. their estrogen levels change, that must, you know, I don't know, maybe it increases their risk factor for certain um, diseases or, you know, so I think it brings up a very interesting set of questions like your research. Chris, I want to say that, you know, your perception as a, you know, I think you were coming from this point of having this perception of menopause from, from, a, from a male standpoint, but it's not that different from my perception of menopause from a female standpoint who, you know, from a female who just isn't there yet. I mean, right. what I associate with menopause is hot flashes, mm -hmm. changes in right. mood, sweating, and just overall <laughs> irritability, right. just given my experiences with, you know, the older women in my life who have gone through these processes. Right. So, I mean, for me to even think about neuroscience in the context of menopause is, is a very novel idea. And I'm glad that you are doing this, Beth, because it's really very important, you know? It, it is. I totally agree. It is super important. And... To really have parity in, in treating both sexes and across racial groups, we really need to understand the whole system. We need to understand how the brain is interacting um, with the reproductive system, you know, with, with other health issues like cardiovascular and diabetes and obesity. All of these also have the ability to change hormone levels, and they interact often in the same um, cellular and molecular pathways. And so when you have something like estrogen that has the potential to be sort of an overall protective factor, the more we understand about it, the easier it will be to use those mechanisms um, in a beneficial way to treat other diseases. The thing that um, we haven't talked about with menopause, but that's really interesting to me, is how it's sort of the other bookend in your reproductive life. Like, 
you go through puberty, and this is something that people have very strong feelings about, how their experiences in puberty, and then a woman's reproductive life ends with menopause, and these are really two times of tremendous change physically um, in terms of puberty, but also mentally as the brain you know, is continuing to respond to uh, plasticity. We think... Uh, you know, for a long time, I thought of development as just the beginning of your life, but now I see that development of the brain and how hormones regulate it really goes your entire life. Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't stop. It's the, it's the development is the accumulation of your lifetime of exposure to your environment and your hormones. Um, in menopause, when the, the hormone levels finally decrease, you know, the, the brain is coming off it. 30, 40 year period of hormone levels and now has to adapt to a low hormone state. And it's it's instances of maladaptation um, that seem to, you know, drive some of the problems that women have during menopause. And, you know, and in rodents, we can't uh, yet... um, measure hot flashes or I don't know mm-hmm. we've talked about it we haven't measured hot flashes in rodents yet it might be possible I don't know do um, rodents get hot flashes I don't know we were talking about how how would you measure hot flash in a rodent I don't I'm not even sure how to measure hot flashes in a human uh I believe in humans it's skin conductance to some degree but I'm not certain a lot right. of it's and you know a lot of times when a woman goes to a, her physician it is it's all anecdotal she's reporting what she remembers um, as accurate as that may be, humans are not always great at reporting I mean, accurately. I mean, I don't know how to measure it, but I can certainly no. um, just qualitatively say, you know, I've, I've gone up to women and say, hey, how'd you get that sunburn to women in my family? And they're like, I wasn't outside. Thank you very much. You know, <laughs> so um, that was a very embarrassing moment for yeah. me. And I think that was one of the first moments wh- where I realized that menopause happens Yes, menopause happens. Yeah. There's not many ways to stop it. <laughs> no, but I, I think your, your your contextualization of, you know, this bookend analogy, that's... So and I true. guess I have a question. Is is there a bookend for men? I know there's a certain point where we stop pr- producing testosterone at a certain level, but is it as dramatic as what happens with women and estrogen? No, it's not as dramatic. And it's not clear to me that it's as much as a bookend as just a, a tapering off. Um, I mean, even for women, a bookend is a little bit of the wrong analogy because it takes women about seven to 10 years to enter menopause. This transition period is long and for many women difficult because that's when you're experiencing the symptoms associated with menopause. For men, you know, some report symptoms due to low hormone levels um, and they do decline over age. So it's some way, it's where your threshold of sensitivity is before you start feeling the effects of low testosterone. It's, that's actually something that hasn't been well studied in, in men. Menopause appears to be a very uncomfortable period f- for many women, um, and not even regarding uh, the, ch- the changes in risk factors to mm-hmm. diseases, but just in terms of just being. Um, what are some of the treatments or, you know, types of things that women might do to alleviate the symptoms of menopause? There's a lot of individual variability in the symptoms of menopause. And a, 
choosing what to do when you find the symptoms to be uncomfortable is really also an individual decision that you need to make with your physician. If you have risk factors um, that might put um, put you in a category where you're more likely to develop breast or ovarian cancer, you obviously don't want to take estrogen. You know, some, some women find... Um, relief in, in exercise or alternative medicines. It's because your body's changing so much, you need to be prepared to change a little bit and experiment and try new things to see what really works best for you. So Beth, what are some of the risk factors that can affect women's mental health through menopause that you've seen with your work? So you know, in this field, people have been looking at a number of both sort of internal and external environmental factors, you know, external being, you know, is there, do you have a history of stress or stressful experiences that might affect your mental health? An internal factor would be like a genetic predisposition. I'm currently working on a human polymorphism and brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is also called BDNF. And BDNF plays an important role during development and establishing the connectivity of the brain and the structure of the brain. Uh, but it also continues to play a role in adult life in just maintaining plasticity, your ability of your brain to be responsive. Now, a single nucleotide change in BDNF alters the way BDNF acts within a cell. And people who have one or two copies of this are more at risk for uh, mood disorders. And in the human population, this has been shown, if you have two copies of the BDNF FAL66 met polymorphism, you're highly likely to suffer from a mood disorder like schizophrenia or bipolar. And people who have just a single copy of it are also more likely to experience a mood disorder. And it's coming out that particularly women in menopause or low estrogen states um, may also uh, have a, com- you know, a combination of these two risk factors. And so the work that I do in my, my rodent model is to understand what's, what's changing in the brain when you have, when you're expressing a single copy of this polymorphism where is the risk coming in? At what point? Is it early in menopause? Is it late in menopause? Is there going to be a point where we can treat it and reverse the effects um, or somehow you know, offer other types of you know, therapeutics that would um, prevent the emergence of a, of a mood disorder? So single nucleotide polymorphism, that's basically a change in um, the DNA code for BDNF. And just to also clarify, humans have two copies of each gene, right? So you can have either one copy with that has the single nucleotide polymorphism, or you, and then one copy that has the normal version, or you can have two copies of normal or two copies of the single nucleotide polymorphism. So, and that is like a dose, a dosage type thing. It is like right? a dosage type. Um, to some degree, your your brain is compensating by having one normal copy, mm-hmm. um, but it's also being affected by the the mutation, the, the copy that has a mutation. So in women particularly, I was interested in it because estrogen actually can increase the levels of BDNF. And so having the mutation may not affect women as much when they have 
regular high estrogen levels. But in during menopause, when estrogen levels go down, estrogen's not there to help support BDNF levels. Suddenly, you'll, you're going to see the effects of the mutation emerge. And so what exactly is BDNF? I know we kind of um, briefed over it before. Right, so brain-derived neurotrophic factor um, belongs to a family of trophic factors that help sculpt the structure of the brain during development, and then in adulthood seem to play a role in um, for the brain to continue to exhibit plasticity. Okay. Um, and, has, and plasticity is just being able to change in response to certain stimuli or certain things that are happening right. in the environment. Right. Okay. I, I have to figure out how to say it. But so, so can you give us like a model, I guess, of, of what's happening then? Is it that with the plasticity um, and the mood disorder, people just aren't able to respond to things as well or as quickly or adapt. So can you speak to that? Like what, right. what it's, it's kind of doing and how estrogen plays a role. And you, you were saying before how estrogen, um, if there is that mutation, I guess it helps to kind of um, equal it out. But as those estrogen levels um, become lower, that plasticity, I guess, is affected. Mm -hmm. Is that a good understanding? Yes. So um, let, let me talk for a moment about memory. We know with aging that the type of synapses, the connections between two cells that you have change. And what is lost are these small synapses that seem to be very plastic and able to respond to the environment. And that's why people believe with aging, there's less ability to form new memories that um, the brain doesn't quite have that same reserve in order to generate that connections. And it's likely that similar things are happening in the case of, of mood disorders, that the plasticity is, it either isn't there, uh, you're not able to generate it when you need to respond to an environmental stimuli, or the plasticity that's there is you know, maybe somehow locked in place and so too rigid, and then again, not able to remodel in response to an environmental uh, change. So like somebody's getting on your nerves and you can't make them not get on your nerves. Or somebody that you've just met, you're like, you're getting on my nerves. And they're like, dude, I've never even met you before. <laughs> <laughs> but, you respond, but you're right, not able right. to. You're not able to respond. You know, right. in, in those situations, you're telling yourself to, you know, step down. Right. You know, move back from the, from the irritant. Right. Um, but, yes, you know, it's. If you weren't able to tell yourself to step down, you know, you, you could stay in that person's face and it would escalate. Right. And that's, you know, not that's not healthy uh, adaptation at all. <laughs> and like you're saying, when you get older, it it's interesting because it seems there's a period of time when you're young. And we've talked about this before mm -hmm. where you're kind of learning. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of get into, into certain things. But then there's a certain age where you're like, oh, OK, I can step down or I can mm -hmm. back away. But I've noticed as I've gotten older. It, it is starting to happen just a little bit where it's like, okay, I'm, you know, I, sometimes I won't engage beforehand because I know like what my response will be. And I'm like, I probably won't be able to step away. So I'll just step right. away before things get there. Where, and it could be anything. It could even be like food. It's like certain types of food. Like I'm like, okay, I won't eat that food because I know. Because you know. Right? Yeah. You know. That's, that's weird that you say that because it's happening to me too where I'm finding 
uh, my patience level is becoming lower and lower and lower. And I, is this a plasticity response? <laughs> you might be responding to your environment. <laughs> Perhaps. Is it situational? <laughs> yes. We know yeah. that it's interesting because, um, you know, we talked earlier about puberty and sort of this, that's in some ways the start of your adult life. And a lot of development occurs at puberty, a lot of changes in the brain. Um, but those changes really continue in humans until the mid-20s. Um, and I was right about the age I yeah. stopped being stupid. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I, hey, I don't have to do that. I know what's going to happen. I'm I just not going to do that. I feel like 25 or 26 was the year that I gained my superpower where <laughs> things could now just be okay. And mm -hmm. I didn't have to waste all my time and energy worrying about things that were black and white. Right. Like now things were okay and I could go to graduate school. I could become a scientist. I could do other things with my brain. I often think about that with teenagers and like making art. <clears throat> You know, it's like when whenever you're young, you haven't done things enough to see them come back, you know. So like with art or other things, it's like, you know, you're kind of impatient because you have only put certain things out there and you haven't seen them come back. Or maybe you've only seen them come back like once or twice. And I think once you get to a certain age, you know, you're like, oh, well, if I do this this way, like, you know, to really bore everybody with painting, it's like, you know, you have to paint you know, a couple hundred paintings before you really even start to understand like, all right, well, this color goes with this color and this is the reason why. And, you know, when I was 16, it was like, no, I'm just going to make a whole drawing. And it's like, but you're not going to make a whole drawing. You got to like, you know, so, so right. it's interesting from a developmental standpoint, how you have to go through those literal like stages of experimentation with Growing your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's also interesting, I think about this in terms of my work with menopause, that, you know, menopause is not going off some sort of cliff. You know, most people get, most women get through menopause just fine. Mm -hmm. And it's what you're talking about. It's the accumulation of years of experience, understanding how to interact with your environment that you can continue to use that knowledge, even if, you know, even though your brain is losing some of its plasticity and many people are really successful at continuing to do that. It's, you know, getting back to the biology, trying to understand that people who are not as successful at that, that, you know, therapeutically will be really interesting um, to, to know what the mechanisms are. About how much of the population um, has a hard time with menopause or female population, I should say? Um, in terms of mood disorders, it's about 20 percent. So it's pr still pretty significant. It's, oh, yes. It's a huge number um, in terms of like economic burden and quality of life burden, you know, 20% of the female population, you know, between 45 and 55. What is a mood disorder? Yeah, that's what I was going right. to ask. So, because when you say mood disorder, it's right. like, oh, I'm grumpy all the time, but that might not, you know, I could right. just be a grumpy person. Maybe I need to switch to decaf. <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink coffee, but I'm just <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> um, so a mood disorder usually falls into several categories, and these are things that are you know, defined by panels of experts and disagreed upon strongly. But usually being grumpy for a few days or being sad for a few days is not a mood disorder. It's something that's persistent. So you know, chronic depression, people who have generalized anxiety disorders, this is a persistent chronic you know, problem that they're dealing with with anxiety. So if I'm having a rough day, people shouldn't be like, Chris, get over your mood disorder. 
No. It's like, no, I probably just need some ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Or exercise. (laughs) Yes. I've learned the joys of exercise lately. You mentioned, I just want to back up for a second. You mentioned estrus. What is estrus? Oh, in, in rodents, rodents don't have a menstrual cycle like humans. In rodents, we call it an estrus cycle. Okay. It's just going through all the stages um, of follicular development leading to ovulation. So when you're talking about um, like stress and menopause and we were joking about, you know, ice cream and exercise, yeah. do you, are there tests that you do with exercise and how that creates and induces like stress in your mice? Is that part of your experimentation? Um, I am not using exercise um, right now in my animal work. Um, people have looked at exercise um, in, in terms of like treating depression, and it is effective and interesting. Exercise increases levels of BDNF, so that might be one way that it's helping the brain cope is by you know increasing one of the components of plasticity in the brain. I um, am looking at stress in my animal model sort of in indirect ways. It, turns out that going to the mouse gynecologist, you know, every day for 10 days may be a stressful experience uh, that I had. I can imagine. Yeah, you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. At least they don't Uh, have to put their feet in those freezing cold stirrups. Yeah, exactly. I sort of had my head down and was so intent on getting the experiment done. I didn't think about it from the mouse perspective. And so we're seeing some really interesting results come out where mice that went to the gynecologist now respond Um, to a test for anxiety differently than an an animal who didn't, so that there's an interaction um, of stress or maybe even just handling the animals every day uh, with the menopause so that you can reverse the effects of menopause depending on this other experience that the animals had. I mean, that's that's why when I said before, you know, you're going through menopause and you want to reduce the symptoms, you need to try different things. You need to be flexible. It's, we don't, you don't always know what's going to work. Do you think BDNF is a um, is a perhaps a target that maybe pharmaceutical companies are looking at to try to develop some sort of treatment or drug uh, oh. to help with women in menopause? I don't believe that pharmaceuticals or companies are looking at it in terms of women in menopause, but they are looking at it in terms of neurological diseases. Mm-hmm. Are there pharmaceuticals that exist right now to help women through menopause other than like estrogen replacement or isn't Um, there like an estrogen patch? Right. So there's different types of estrogen treatments that you can do, Um, you know, and there's also the the antidepressants that will work for for women who have depression or anxiety when they go through menopause. It's really an an individual choice Mm -hmm. um, because of you know, knowledge that we have about risk factors, you know, with estrogen and cancer, you know, you, you have you have to make it on a case by case basis. Sure. But yeah, I mean, it is if you're suffering from menopause and you have no reason to to think that you have a risk for estrogen sensitive cancers, then yes, estrogen could help you uh, go through the, the transition to menopause. Thank you, Beth, for joining us. Thanks, Jeannie and Chris. Uh, thank you. It was fun to talk to you. podcast is supported by the science outreach program at the rockefeller university our producer is tim dennis 
Our theme song is Springtime Jazz by Fool's Chaos. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.